Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Cybersecurity. It's been dominating news cycles lately. Whether it's allegations of Russians hacking computers to influence U.S. elections and politics, to smaller but no less important reports of private individuals who find themselves at the mercy of malware installed unknowingly on their computers, cybercrimes and cybersecurity affect each and every one of us every day. And libraries are no exception. This month on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we look at how cybersecurity affects the library world. First, I speak with Patrick Craven, director of the Center for Cybersecurity Safety and Education. We discuss the center's mission, its programs for libraries, and tips on making you and your library cyber safe. Next, I talk with Todd Stevens, county librarian, and Chris McSwain, information technology and systems director at Spartanburg County Public Libraries in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. Their library was the victim of a ransomware attack. We discussed the incident, their response, and what you can do if you find yourself in a similar situation. But first, a word from a sponsor. ALA Job List is the award-winning source for jobs in library and information science and technology, or the list, L-I-S-T. If you're looking for a new job or an employer who wants to advertise a job opening, JobList has you covered. Job seekers can refine and filter searches by position type, employer, and location, post resumes, and automate alerts to never miss a posting. Employers can rest easy knowing that ALA reaches the engaged professionals that you want to hire. It also simplifies recruiting by offering flat rate pricing, discounted multi-ad packages, and enhanced postings for increased visibility. ALA JobList. It's where job seekers and employers get results. Visit joblist.ala.org for more information or to begin your search today. Get on the list. What exactly do we mean when we talk about cybersecurity? That's a good question. To answer that, I spoke with Patrick Craven, director of the Center for Cybersecurity Safety and Education. We discussed why cybersecurity is a priority and what you, as librarians, can do to help. All right, we're here with Patrick Craven. He's the director of the uh, Center for Cyber Safety and Education. Patrick, welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, now, before we begin, before we get uh, we, we talk a bit more about cybersecurity, uh, uh, can you tell me and our listeners a bit about the Center uh, for Cyber Safety and Education and what you do and, and I guess why you do it? Yeah, we uh, the Center for Cyber Safety and Education is a nonprofit, uh, and our focus really is on trying to make it a safer cyber world. And so we do that through a couple of different things. We do research on how people use the internet. Um, we do uh, college scholarships in an effort to try to encourage more people to get into information or cybersecurity uh, is a field of study. And then the big thing we do, we focus most of our time on is on education. It's trying to teach people how to be safe on the Internet. We have programs that we've developed that we make available for, for children, for uh, parents, for senior citizens. And, and that's one of the areas that we really see that the libraries get uh, 
hopefully utilize uh, to help us in spreading the message. Why is online safety education so essential right now, especially I think this is something our listeners will be concerned about, especially for kids. Um, why is it so essential that kids these days know how to navigate their lives online safely? Well, it, it's obvious it's going to be the way that we do everything <laughs> in the future. Yeah. And and part of the challenge is, is that kids are growing up with this, so they have no fear of it. Uh, they, they don't know a life without the Internet. They don't know a life without smartphones and iPads, mm-hmm. where those of us uh, as adults, we do. And, and so it's actually somewhat intimidating for us. Uh, I will confess, as many of your other listeners I'm sure will, that uh, uh, there's when I have trouble with my phone, I ask my kids uh, how to make it work, um, you know, type of thing, because it's just they do it all day long and they're used to it. And that gives them such a confidence level and such a trust factor that it's scary. And that's where the danger comes in, because they don't have a fear. I often look at it as if you grew up with a pool in your backyard, you probably are pretty good swimming, and you're not afraid of the water. Well, that's how these kids are. They're, they grew up with these. They're not afraid of them. And there's a lot of danger that exists on them. They think everybody on there is nice and is their friend and is who they say they are. And we know that's not the case. And so we're trying to help communicate those messages to them from a safety standpoint, stranger danger, that type of stuff, mm-hmm. all the way to, um, you know, identity theft and uh, those types of things, even then you can get into the darker side of it, of abductions and and suicides from bullying. It's just there's so much great that can come out of the Internet, and we want it in all of our schools and libraries and homes, but there got to be some lessons that go with it so these kids can stay safe. Absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned you have uh, numerous educational resources, and you've been working with libraries on some of these, or you have uh, programs available for libraries. Uh, one is Safe and Secure Online. Can you just talk a bit about this? What um, um, how did this program come about, and uh, what you, you're offering? And, I, and uh, I guess we can get to this later, but how libraries can get involved. Sure. Well, what's really interesting is we are actually the charitable foundation of an organization called ISC Squared, and it's one that I would not expect anybody to have heard of unless mm-hmm. you were in the cybersecurity industry. And what they are is the premier certification organization for cybersecurity professionals. So if you're becoming an attorney, you have to go to school and then you study and prep and you take the bar exam in order to do it, or a a CPA would do the same thing. That's what this is for cybersecurity professionals. So we are working with the top cybersecurity professionals literally in the world. Uh, ISC Square has 135,000 members in 107 countries. The Safe and Secure Online is kind of the brand name of the educational materials uh, separate from our research or our um, scholarship program. It's called Safe and Secure Online. You can get to it through that, or you can get to it through imcybersafe.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, I've, I've just been looking through and researching uh, your work for the past couple of weeks, and um, you've, you've partnered with Jim Davis. Uh, uh, as you don't know, he, he created Garfield, and so you have this interesting Garfield branding. And uh, some of the uh, you have this digital uh, digital citizenship library program. That I think some of our listeners probably be interested in that. It has lessons plans and puzzles and coloring pages. So 
I, I encourage our listeners to to go to your website and, and check this out um, because there's you know there's a, a basic plan that's free, but also goes up to uh, something that you do pay for. But it does seem uh, like it's important. Uh, we have the exclusive global rights to work with Jim Davis and Garfield um, to create cyber safety lessons for children. And what makes this so impactful is, is, is anybody knows, librarians know this, teachers know this, in order to, to, to teach uh, any lesson, you have to engage the kids, your audience, whether it's children or adults. You have to get them to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And that's when we turn to Garfield. Uh, the kids know Garfield. They love Garfield. He's been around for 40 years, just to make everybody feel old. And so we are created with Jim lessons using our, uh, our security experts. We put together lessons on privacy, on safe posting, on cyberbullying. We have more in the works. They have cartoons with them. They have comic books. There's there uh, posters, stickers, trading cards, all kinds of fun things to help engage the kids in uh, in learning how to be safe online. And and so those are the kinds of things that we look at is how we can help uh, partner with the libraries is to be able to offer material. So when you get into the to the Garfield, as you mentioned, there there's some free stuff on there that uses Garfield that we've made available. But when you get to uh, the comic books and um, uh, the digital lessons and things like that, there is a small fee for those. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're a nonprofit. So we're just trying to recoup our cost out of it. We're, we're not trying to make money on it. We're just trying to recoup our effort of what we put into it. And, and so those are available for libraries. But one of the things that we try to encourage you to do is to look at having a uh, maybe a cyber safety day or, or days. You could do several of them a year. And we've got a lot of libraries we work with that are doing that. Too. They're utilizing our programs because for the parents and seniors, we have PowerPoint presentations. They're available for free on our site, imcybersafe.org, and that they can be downloaded and put on a presentation for seniors, um, which deals a lot with scams because that's where they're most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, for parents, that one, the parents one reverts back to some research that we did, which you can also find on the website. It's just terrific research on how children use the Internet. And one of the things that we found that elementary school kids, that 40% of them have chatted with a stranger online. Hmm. And so the parents one begins to deal with what should I be doing as a parent to help protect my child, to help teach my child. And uh, so we've created a presentation for them as well. And then there's the, the Garfield materials for the elementary school. There's some stuff for middle school. Now, now for 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 those of our, our listeners who who might want to to start doing this immediately, um, they haven't had a chance to go to check out your site or, or or what you offer. Is there anything that's what what should what should parents and what should libra- or librarians or anyone do? Like, what are some some good first steps um, to protect yourself and to protect your kids? Oh, I think one of the big things is to um, just make sure that they're practicing what you preach kind of thing. Is that yeah. are, Even in your own library, are you following your own practices um, when it comes to privacy, when it comes to the information that you're collecting off of people? Uh, you know, if they're filling out for a library card, what happens to that information? Where's it going? Uh, when emails come in, um, you don't open every email. Uh, you know, that's what we're trying to teach. That's where 90% of hacks uh, into companies and organizations happen because somebody opened up an email. 
Um, and they get an email from somebody, and especially when you're in a public kind of situation that most of your listeners will be in, where they're they're going to just get stuff. I mean, it's not hard to get an email because they they put in whatever library.com kind of thing, or um, and so you get this stuff. You don't know who it's from. It's not from your friend like you would a personal one. You might say, I don't know who this is. Well, these you won't know. Um, but you've got to just be really careful on what you open and what you click. If it doesn't look right, don't open it, um, because that's where the hacks begin. And when they get into your system, um, it may not happen right away. Your screen may not go black, um, but they're in the background, and they could be gathering information, gathering the personal information off of uh, your members, uh, those who belong to the different libraries or the students in the, in the school library, that you may have information, and they're able to gather that off of it. And uh, while you may not have social security numbers, they can turn and they just match up um, information they got because you're going to have phone numbers, you're going to have emails, you're going to have addresses, and they can match that information up and, and begin creating problems. So we always say, you know, it starts at home with everything is to make sure that internally we're practicing those safe practices. And then what can we be doing to uh, to promote those to others as well? Um, you know, think about it. What, how would you want your personal information? If you gave your personal information to some other organization, what are they doing with it? Um, you need to be thinking like that when you're taking people's personal information, uh, is to be careful with it at all times. And so uh, we, we, we start with that, start with ourselves, and then begin how can we teach that out to others. Absolutely. Um, Patrick, this has been a Fascinating conversation, very interesting, and, and I guess a, a very important one. So um, if any of our listeners uh, want information, they can go to IamCyberSafe.org. That's IamCyberSafe.org. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for being on the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great time. Join American Libraries Live for a free webinar to learn how to serve more patrons with expanded, unlimited streaming video. American Libraries Live webcasts cover the full spectrum of library topics and give the ALA community a chance to learn about and discuss issues it deals with daily. This Wednesday, August 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern, library industry veterans Jim Schmidt and Brad Gray will explain RB Digital Streaming Video, a new streaming video service that allows patrons to binge watch videos without breaking your library's budget. Also, Jocelyn Bates of Las Vegas Clark County Library District will share her library's experience with RB Digital, how much their patrons enjoy access to the service, and tips to successfully promote this service to your patrons. Again, that's this Wednesday, August 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern for Serve More Patrons with expanded unlimited streaming video. You can learn more and register at AmericanLibrariesMagazine.org slash AL-Live. Ransomware, a form of computer malware that encrypts a victim's data to extort payment, is one of the fastest-growing computer security threats. In 2017 alone, such attacks cost businesses, individuals, and other organizations an estimated $5 billion, up from $325 million in 2015. In January of this year, Spartan County Public Library in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina, became the victim of one such attack. I spoke with Todd Stevens, Spartanburg County Librarian, and Chris McSwain, the Library's Director of Information Technology and Systems, about the incident 
how they handled it, and what you can do if you find yourself at the end of a ransomware attack. All right, we're here with uh, Todd Stevens and Chris McSwain. They're from Spartanburg County Public Libraries in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina. Todd and Chris, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us, Phil. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, your library uh, in January, uh, you were the victim of a ransomware attack. And um, for some of our uh, for our listeners who might not be aware of, of, of the story, uh, let's let's go back to that day. Um, that day when you when you when you found out that your systems uh, had been affected, um, when did you first know something was amiss that morning? Yeah, and and so Phil, this is this is Todd, and let me give you a little bit of the uh, kind of the upper level overview of this, and then Chris can jump in and provide a little bit more information as we proceed, kind of like a color commentary and play by play, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a heck, it's been a heck of a journey. So on Monday, January 29th of this year. At 11 o'clock uh, Eastern time uh, in the morning, uh, Chris notified me that uh, our systems guys had noticed some suspicious activity on our network and that we were bringing our system down. Uh, so in a little while, Chris can get into what that suspicious activity looked like. But so what we did is we brought everything down, and in doing so, uh, we stopped providing direct public services uh, using computers, and uh, any sort of technology, because we had to, to stop the encryption as quickly as we could. Mm-hmm. So as the day proceeded, Chris and his team uh, tried to uh, bring the system back up. Uh, we had a solution in place that, that essentially failed, and it was about 10 o'clock, almost 12 hours later in the day, uh, when Chris said, and his words have resonated with me, uh, he said, we're dead in the water. We're dead in the water. Um, so our system had been hit with a ransomware, mm-hmm. and uh, we were literally dead in the water. And uh, Chris can explain to you a little bit in more detail from the IT side uh, the intricacies of all this. Uh, we did have a solution in place that we had. Uh, we were under the impression would would work, and it failed. And I use the analogy, and I tell people it's like this: you're driving down the road, and you have a flat tire. You get out and you open up the trunk of your car and you pull out the tire. But guess what? There's no tire. And so what you do is you go out and you buy a tire because you're going to be ready next time. See, this is our second time being hit. And so uh, we were prepared. We had a solution in place. And so we're driving down the road. We had a flat tire. We jumped out and said, hey, we got a spare tire. Pulled it out, and it was flat. And that's essentially what happened. So we've been hit with this before. Um, we were prepared for it because we didn't want this to happen again, and our solution failed us. And so we've had some very um, uh, important, meaningful conversations with our vendor. I can imagine. When was the, the that previous time? When, how, uh, how long ago had that been before you were hit the second time? About three years ago. Oh, wow. So I'm sure things, you know, three years is, is many, many eons, lifetimes, and computer world, so... Uh, it um, is, it's not, but, at, but, 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 okay. but Phil, after it happened that first time, you know, Chris came into my office, and Chris came into my office, and I'll never forget, he said, never again, never again will we have to do, we're going to do this. And so he invested in a virtual server that was to provide a backup that could at least get us back up and running pretty quickly, and it failed, and it failed. Wow. 
So, but we were prepared. We were ready. And so one of the lessons is that you think you're ready and you're not. That's a lesson we learned right there. Yeah. Now, Chris, what, so did, what did you what did you find that morning uh, when you when you discovered that your systems had been compromised? What exactly um, did you find? And I guess uh, I guess the, the follow up of that would be like, what's you 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 were you found some ransomware? What did the um, the uh, I guess the offending parties a way to put it? What did they want? What did they want from the library? So they uh, early that morning uh, we started getting some phone calls in. Uh, of just random systems that we, we use, internal systems, uh, having problems. And so in looking at that, we started noticing that um, desktop icons were, were crashing, uh, people couldn't access their documents, and, and upon investigating that, we found that, you know, we actually saw the encrypted uh, version of those. Um, and so we immediately moved to a, a containment mode where we tried to shut down everything and lock it off so we could start investigating where it was from and how to contain it. Um, but this thing, it moved like nothing I've ever seen uh, before. Um, it encrypted, you know, pretty much everything within within about an hour, hour and a half. Um, and so the, the offending party wanted, uh, I think it was about $38,000 in Bitcoin at the time. When you found this... Um your systems had been compromised. Um, how did that affect the day-to-day operations of your library? You said you had, I think you, you, you went offline. Um, what, what, how did that impact um, your services? Uh, from a technology standpoint, I mean, we, we shut down our website. We shut down email communications. Um, we shut down lending services uh, through our ILS. Um, and uh, we shut down all public and uh, staff machines on the network um, and only left up uh, necessary machines for us to work at uh, you know, mitigating this. Now, um, now, Todd, um, from, from what I understand is you, um, you refused to pay this ransomware, um, I, guess, I guess the ransom, you, you refused to pay it. Now, how did you, um, a, I guess, first of all, how did you, what kind of communications did you have with uh, with the people who you're holding your your system hostage, and why did you refuse to pay? And, and I guess um, um, the follow up, the flip to that would be, um, did that? How did you get back online after that? What was the the response to that refusal? Okay, so we didn't really have any direct communication uh, with those folks who uh, who had the ransomware script, because the way my understanding is the way this works, it, it just goes out and latches on to a vulnerability, and so it latched on, and then we would have to engage with it to then begin the ransom pro- paying process. I see. So, so we was not like we were in communication back and forth with one another. It, it was waiting for us to to engage it. Then it would take us to the payment options, which was Bitcoin. Um, oh. And so, how did we reach the conclusion not to pay the ransom? Uh, Chris McSwain uh, here walked into my office and said, we aren't paying this ransom. And I said, okay, let's talk it out. And I said, uh, I asked him, let me know what you're thinking here. And Chris was Chris made an interesting point, and one of which was that if we pay it, then we are now a known entity that will pay. Mm-hmm. And so who wants to be on that list? <laughs> True. Right. And so, and the second thing is, and I think this is an interesting point, we could have paid it. We could have paid whatever it was. 
and had uh, essentially received our information back. But there are instances where you pay, make that payment and you have your information come back to you, but they've embedded it with another ransomware packet mm-hmm. into another file. So you have essentially allowed yourself to become a vul- vulnerable again. Um, so we felt like it, while it was painful, it was worth it to make certain that we were protecting the system over the long term uh, by not paying uh, the requested ransom. Oh, yeah, I, that makes total sense. It's interesting because um, I'll admit to being a complete novice when it comes to these <laughs> type of cybersecurity issues. Um, so I think that's fascinating that you had no direct contact with them. But, um, yeah, I guess when, 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 when one, myself or maybe some of our listeners, if you think of the word ransom, your mind immediately goes to, like, uh, say, an old movie situation where you have, like, you know, a, a hostage situation. But that's not the case. It's um, it's You're very much left um, like you did to make a, a decision like that. And I, I'm, I'm curious to, to that kind of crime analogy. Did you contact the police or the authorities to let them know um, uh, what had happened? And if so, what was their response? Yeah, so, uh, yes, to answer your question, we did contact um, the FBI, but we made a decision in-house to engage law enforcement after it, we had uh, put ourselves in a position of recovery because if we were actively involved in trying to bring up our system and we engage law enforcement, there's a chance the law enforcement could have come in and sequestered our, sequestered our, um, our data, which would have hindered our ability to get back up. So mm-hmm. along the process of uh, restoration, Chris and his team uh, took screenshots, uh, made notations of script, uh, and pulled together the information that law enforcement would need after we were uh, fully restored. And how long did it take for you to get uh, to, to fully restore yourself uh, once um, you had made the decision not to pay? Well, the okay, and a, a great man, Phil. Each of these areas, we could go on all day and talk about this because. <laughs> it, and let, let me back up a little bit, and I will. I'll answer your question. Um, the way Chris and I established our, our communication pattern is once we came down, Chris and I would meet three times a day. We would meet in the morning, we would meet after lunch, and we would meet end of day. And so the morning, we would establish what the work plan is for the day. We have 10 locations. Uh, we're spread over 811 square miles. We're a very large county. Uh, so I have 220 staff. And so we had to be very uh, methodical in what our process was going to be. So Chris and I would meet every morning, look at what the work plan is. We would touch base by phone after lunch, and then we would meet face-to-face at the end of the day to see what the measurements are. You know, have, has, have we gotten to where we need to be? That communication process probably went on for close to four weeks. Hmm. And in that four-week process, Chris made a comment about knowing when the project was complete. How will we know we have full recovery? And so we are at full recovery, but we probably did not hit what I would consider total overall full complete recovery until maybe a couple of weeks ago. Our listeners should probably you know, take notice of the fact that you, you might get hit with this, but it's going to affect you for, for many, many months afterwards. Well, and it, it continues to affect us because it has changed 
um, our disaster preparedness. It has changed our staff training. It has changed how we are handling uh, third-party applications such as Dropbox mm-hmm. or Evernote. Um, so the so the lessons that we have learned are being applied today. So uh, it continues to reverberate, and will and we and will continue. I mean, it's changing processes that will be in place this time next year. Yeah. Um, now, I, from what from what I understand, that you think that the um, the offending the offending malware and ransomware uh, infected your system was via an email, I believe. Now, you had mentioned um, some some preventative measures that that uh, that you've um, taken. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, what um, what has I mean, you said you had some some measures from your previous attack? What did you change after the second attack that maybe you had, weren't aware of after the first one? I mean, this is Chris. Um, one of the big things we did was we inst- uh, started a, uh, a staff training for uh, phishing uh, emails. Um, mm-hmm. and that's that's been eye opening uh, for sure. Um, but that's one of the big things we did, and we also uh, we, we became uh, stricter with uh, flash drive removable media uh, use and access uh, for both uh, public and staff. Um, now, for some of our, our listeners um, that uh, – they might be freaking out right now for all I know because um, it sounds like, again, I mean, you, 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 your library was prepared and you still got hit. Um, for anyone out there listening who, who might have concerns and, and want to prepare themselves, do you have any tips for them, like any first steps, uh, things that they should do to, to protect themselves? Okay, so we have – first of all, the, the number one tip is just because it shows up in your inbox does not mean it's a priority, important, or safe. And mm-hmm. so just because you think you, somebody has emailed you doesn't mean they've actually emailed you. Uh, and that is, that's huge because people will receive uh, phishing emails with a fake email address, but it may reflect an actual email address. And you just have to be very careful about what you're you're clicking on, and so yeah. as as Chris has mentioned, we're doing we we test the system. Uh, we are we have set up test testing uh, emails that go out to all our staff to check click rate. And after our this is fascinating to me, Phil. So we just went through this whole process. It was painful, and here we are. Uh, Chris sends out a fake email, and the percent rate was about a about a 45% click rate on a fake email after we had just gone through this and communicated wow. with staff, don't don't click on fake email or something that appears to be suspicious. Right. And so 45% of our staff started clicking. Now that's that's worrisome. So yeah. we then not- we notified those staff, hey, you're clicking on fake email. And last time Chris ran this test, I think we're down to a little over 2% now. Right. So we, we saw a 43% drop, but the key is to test the system. So if you're trying to prevent this from home, test your system. Um, we had McAfee as our uh, antivirus software. Uh, it didn't. Didn't catch it. We also had um, a 
I want to talk about this for a second. Our network runs through the state of South Carolina. It is provided by the state. The state noticed that on Friday before the attack and through the weekend, we were hit with over 30,000 attempts into our system. Wow. And they did not notify us. On Monday morning, when the guys walked in or the women or whoever runs that shop walked in, they did not say, huh, things are not looking so good in Spartanburg. But had they paid attention to their reports, that their, their, their reports, and notified us, hey, you're under attack, we could have immediately disengaged and prevented all of this. So the information was out there and it was not reported. So here's the lesson for your listeners. Don't be complacent. Other people are not taking care of you. You need to take care of yourself because other people are not. McAfee did not. The state did not. Our backup solution did not. We have to do it. So the lesson for your listener is you are the front line of prevention when it comes to attacks on your um, equipment. Because we had we had multiple opportunities for this to be identified, prevented, and resolved, and all three of those opportunities failed. Yeah, yeah. Those are I mean, those are keywords I think uh, for not just for cyber security, but for for everything. You are the first defense. Um, uh, Todd and Chris, this has been a fascinating conversation. Like you said, we could discuss this for hours. <laughs> Um, but I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that uh, your library is back up and running. It seems like things are, are. Are, are are working well. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for being yeah. on the Dewey Decimal Podcast today. I really appreciate it. It is great, and we appreciate you thinking of us. We're here to tell this story anytime you need us to. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. You yeah. have a great day. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Join us next month as we look at trends and issues in library architecture and design to coincide with the release of American Library's annual Library Design Showcase that's coming up in our September-October issue, and we're very excited about it. As always, you can let us know how we're doing or what we can do over at Facebook, on Twitter, or via email at deweydecibel at ala.org. Praise, complaints, show ideas, anything at all, we want to hear from you. Until next month, I'm Phil Moorhart from American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast.